This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. All the views presented in this hour do not reflect the views of KDVS, KDVS sponsors, or the University of California. Up next, Radio Parallax. Hey, wait a minute, guy. You're in the middle of the show. Wait, no. No, I got wait. I got to argue with you on this one because, you know, as far as I know, in this program, we firmly advocate the position that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that does reflect the opinion of the University of California, Davis. It might reflect your position of California Davis, but if you were a passive observer observing this, then would two plus two equal four? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Guy Tortorisi is not just introducing Radio Parallax. He's become a part of Radio Parallax. Guy, I know for a long time you wanted to witness how this show gets thrown together and, uh, Frankly, we're glad to have you on board to watch it take place. Yes, thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing how this show gets thrown together. And thrown together is the operative description. Joining us now in the program is probably the closest thing we have at Radio Parallax to a language expert. Gordon Smith spoke with us some years back about the Turkish language, which I guess is now the Turkish language. We'll have to clarify that in a minute. And many years before that, we addressed the ongoing controversy over the immortal Pedro Carolino, whose English to Portuguese phrasebook is still legendary. And so we thought, being that he speaks French, Gordon would be the perfect guy to elaborate upon what I stumbled upon, the World Almanac and Book of Facts section on foreign words and phrases. He is a fluent speaker of the French language, so... For that reason, it's my pleasure to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Gordon Smith. Merci beaucoup, Monsieur de Salle. <laughs> oh, my. Gordon, um, there's, there's so many words that we use in English that, are, that have a French origin, and, we're, and apparently we're misusing quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's go through that. Yeah, well, English is a, a really curious hybrid language, you know? It's, it's uh, Germanic in its structure. But most of its vocabulary is romance, which means it derives from one or the other of the Latin-derived languages. So most of those words, those romance words that passed into English came from French. And some of them have been totally absorbed into the language, and we've forgotten that they're French. But others, you know, we use them as individual words or phrases, but... They're still recognizably French, right? When you say ménage à trois, assuming you manage to work that into the conversation somehow. Which we'd like to, so let's yeah, do that right now. Which we like to, yeah. It's pretty clear that that is still a French phrase. And I do want to note you have come fully prepared for our discussion today and brought along some explanations of some of these gallicisms, as Pedro Carolino might have phrased them. <laughs> Uh, and you've defined a menage a as a household of three, always using English and French in the sexual sense, a couple plus an extra partner with the knowledge of all three. Well spoken. Thank you. And that pretty well sums it up. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's menage a trois, I would say. And right above that, I, you have a, a 
in a similar vein, what would be called the femme fatale, which you sometimes notice pronounced fatal woman. <laughs> and I guess the guy in college who used to talk about the femme's fatal. The femme's fatal, yeah. <laughs> yes. The mother of a friend of mine regularly referred to movies that she had seen and the character who was the femme fatal. I should note that we're working off your general list right now. We'll be more specific in a minute. But here's one I, here's one that I, I like. The And help me with the pronunciation, of course. Enfant terrible. Enfant terrible, yes. Which literally means simply terrible child. But we don't use it in the sense of terrible child as in, you know, a kid going through the terrible twos. We usually apply it to an adult who is somebody who misbehaves and breaks all the rules of his or her profession or subculture, but somehow or other is allowed to get away with it, usually because they have a certain touch of brilliance about them. So that is an enfant terrible. This reminds me of a certain former president who, to my knowledge, was never properly called and labeled an enfant terrible. Yeah, I think he'd gone beyond ordinary terribleness, and so, yeah, he didn't get to be called an enfant terrible. Here's one I really like. Raison d'être? Raison d'être, yes. Okay, say, okay, how we properly say it? That's going to be a big part of our discussion here. How we properly say this word? Raison d'être. Raison, raison d'être. You got it. Okay. You got it. And it simply means reason for being. It's a very handy little phrase, yeah. uh, I would say. You know, it cuts right to the quick. I think so. And um, I always thought fait accompli was Latin. It is not. No, it is indeed French. And uh, it has one of those many tricky little points of French pronunciation. The T at the end of French words is usually silent, but if the next word starts with a vowel, A-E-I-R-U, then you pronounce it. So, fait accompli, so accompli starts with A. So, instead of pronouncing the word fait, it becomes fait accompli. And what it simply means is an accomplished fact, something that is a done deal. As fait, in, fait accompli. Fait accompli, yes. Fait accompli. Let's jump to one that I know is a pet peeve of yours. <laughs> the, I have many. The, well, okay. Well, I, know that, I know that you're not fond of coup de grace. Coup de grace, yes. You could almost say that coup de grace is my bête noire, but we will get to bête noire <laughs> later. So very often... That phrase, coup de grâce, is pronounced in the U.S. as coup de gras. Now, gras means fat. So when you say coup de gras, basically you mean hitting someone with a piece of fat. So unless you're actually beating someone to death with a large slab of fatty bacon, for example, you should pronounce it coup de grâce. Coup a coup de is a blow, grâce. and grâce is as in grace. So it's a, it's a fatal blow, often in the context of you're putting someone out of their misery. It's a mercy killing. Coup de grace. How do you suppose that um, the English speakers butchered this one up? I have no idea. <laughs> well, how about je ne sais quoi? 
Oh, je ne sais quoi is a lovely, lovely phrase. Yes, it is. You and can use it in all kinds of circumstances. So it literally means, I know not what. So if you're trying to describe someone and you can't quite capture what it is uh, about their unique attributes, say, then je ne sais quoi will do the trick very nicely. As in, that woman has a certain je ne sais quoi about her sense of style that is impossible to imitate. I think we have to get the, give the French extra points for that one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's pretty definitely. good. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. And then we have noblesse oblige. Noblesse oblige is another interesting phrase. You don't hear that one too much, but literally it means nobility requires or nobility obligates. And uh, apparently the term comes from a book about, you know, maxims in the French language by a certain duke of something or other, the Duc de Lévis in the early 1800s. And what he was trying to convey with that phrase was the idea that if you are a person of a certain rank, say a duke, then you have certain obligations towards others, as in, you know, to be a decent sort of aristocrat. In America, we don't have too many dukes and such. We, um, we might apply this to someone, say, like Nelson Rockefeller, who was from an extremely wealthy, connected family who nevertheless, I guess, sought a career in public service. Yeah. If he was nobility, then yes, you could say that he exhibited that sense of noblesse oblige. It's a good phrase. Yeah. So it wouldn't apply to the Dukes of Hazard, then? Probably not. Okay. Probably not. No. <laughs> they would be very definitely your lesser nobility. Gotcha. I especially like, Gordon, what you had to say about the French phrase, faux pas. A false step. Yeah, very... Useful kind of uh, word, and one that my Aunt Moy in Montreal, when I was growing up, was particularly fond of. So a faux pas was some kind of misstep in, you know, politeness or what is done. So, you know, sort of the equivalent of picking your nose in public or something like that. Uh, it's very definitely a faux pas. And did your aunt actually sit down to dinner and volunteer, isn't this the worst wine you've ever tasted? Oh, I forgot about that particular episode. No, that had to do with uh, an old family friend, a very dear friend of my parents, who came over for dinner, Sunday dinner one evening, and brought a bottle of wine, mead, as I recall. And I, innocent as to the origins of said bottle of wine, took a sip from my glass and remarked loudly, isn't this the worst wine you have ever tasted in your life? My mother kicked me under the table, and I determined to follow up with my first faux pas with still another said, Which was? Why'd you kick me? <laughs> there you have it, the double faux pas. Yeah, this reminds me of the time when one of my great aunts invited for dinner another one of my great aunts, only to be told, that eh, wasn't your best effort. <laughs> Here's a tricky one on your list, Gordon. Uh, the cul-de-sac. Ex explain this one. Cul-de-sac, yes. This, this word has always amused me since I was a small child because it literally means ass of the sack. And, you know, when you think about it, yeah, a dead end, which is, of course, what a cul-de-sac is, is you could 
think about it as being sort of like, you know, the bottom of the sack or ass of the sack. Uh-huh. The pronunciation of that one is, well, in French, they would say cul-de-sac. You know, the, so it's not cul, it's cul. 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 But I would recommend for English speakers that they stick with cul-de-sac. Otherwise, no one will have any idea what they're saying. Yeah, they shouldn't venture into cul-de-sac without... No, stay practice. away from cul. Although cul. 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 Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Silent L. Good Lord. You know, in some words, they're kind of stuck somewhere in limbo between, I think, English and French. Uh, is it a foyer or a foyer? Well, I would say foyer, but that word is, yeah, it's pretty getting pretty deeply embedded in uh, English. So you might say foyer. It's one of those words that has a different, somewhat different meaning in English and in French. So... When we use the term foyer or foyer, it refers to the entrance area within a building, like a hotel uh, or the like. But in France, it has a different sense. So foyer comes from the root word for fire. Okay. And so a foyer is a fireplace or a hearth. But, you know, it's also used kind of figuratively in French where... Hearth means something larger. It can mean home, for example, or it can mean an area where, you know, a certain group of people gather, you know, like a a foyer foyer d'étudiants would be like a gathering of students or something like that. So it's it's a slippery word in, in French. Speaking of slippery words, there was an Englishman that used to have a, a cook show where he was whipping up various meals for people, and he kept referring to this delicious fillet that he was chopping off, chopping into pieces. Now, is that, c- can you get away with that? I think you can get away with fillet. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But, but we, we, but should, we uh, also use, you know, filet, as in filet mignon. So uh-huh. filet is not quite the way the French would actually pronounce it. They'd Which say is what? Filet. Filet. filet you know, filet, close enough. One more time. Filet is how you would pronounce fillet. Uh, so you could say a filet mignon or, as we do in English, filet mignon. Uh, and speaking of food, which I guess we are, we have a section here on food, drink, and dining. And um, you refer to foie gras as fat liver and advise people not to eat it. No, I think fat liver sort of says it all, right? <laughs> I mean, why would you want to eat something called fat liver? I don't get it. And the way they the way they obtain it from geese force feeding them is just that's cruelty to animals. Yeah, the, there is the whole cruelty to animals right, uh, so thing that goes uh, along with it. But I think that if um, purveyors of foie gras were required to market it as fat liver, sales would implode. Yeah, alcoholics have some familiarity with fatty liver, so yeah, <laughs> it's probably not a good link to make in the public mind. I have to guess I have to spell this out. S-O-U-P-E-D-U-J-O-U-R, which you notice often written on English menus as soup du jour. Uh, and you note that both the soup and do are misspelled. Yeah, so if you have a phrase that has three words in it and you misspell two out of the three <laughs> words, that's kind of a failing grade, I would say. So yes, in French, that would be soup du jour, soup du jour, and not soup. Soup 
de jour. And also, soup in French has an E on the end. Silent, of course, just to, you know, <laughs> of mess course. up the Americans. But of course. Okay, I, I think they went from do to day because of Spanish. I mean, what's it, what, how'd that happen? Again, hard to Who say. Knows. Who knows? Simple error. I like it when you clarify something as being always mispronounced. Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc is, uh, I, should, I should stress that it is a white wine to be avoided. I think I've only <laughs> once in my life had a good Sauvignon Blanc. Uh-huh. But you don't want to make it even worse by pronouncing it Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> Definitely do not want to do that. <laughs> Sauvignon Blanc. In fairness, it doesn't seem right to have a word that's pronounced blanc. There's no justice in this world. Or in French pronunciation. The wine world, of course, is filled with an infinite number of French words and expressions. You could do this whole show about French wine-related words. For example? Terroir. Terroir. Terroir, yes. Terroir. Terroir. Terroir is... Well, it comes from the word earth, terre, but terroir is kind of one of those ineffable words that can mean anything with respect to the origins of a wine, right? It can be the soil, it can be the climate, it can be, I think, the name of the local mayor. It's just (laughs) whatever goes into making that wine distinct. Somehow. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the French always claim that here in America or anywhere else, Chile, wherever, Australia, they really couldn't get the wines correct because they didn't have the French terroir? Well, that's true because you're never going to perfectly replicate, uh, say, for Bordeaux, you're never going to perfectly replicate that particular climate and that particular geology and that particular rainfall. And, but if, you you, know, if you're growing the same grapes, can't you call it Burgundy? I mean, you know. I don't expect you to speak up for the French wine industry, but... It depends how fussy you are about your wines. Now, it's important to know about me that I consider any wine over, say, $9.95 to be overpriced. We're with you on that one. In spite of the fact, I hasten to add that we are going to broadcast this program on the University of California at Davis's radio station, which is mean, as famous viticulture and enology departments. I myself have to confess that I'm possibly the only student in UC Davis history to complete a four-year education and not take wine tasting. <laughs> Brave man in Davis. All right, moving right along. I remember, Gordon, many years ago I was a medical resident and there was a number of good restaurants near where the university was. And I remember a guy coming back and saying, one restaurant certainly had great whores divorce. <laughs> And that ain't right, of course. No, no, that is wrong on so many levels. I mean, it, it look, it's written that way, but we're dealing with the French language. Yeah, I would imagine that even the typical native French speaker probably misspells this particular phrase. It's got a silent H in the beginning and a silent S at the beginning of or. And an apostrophe in the middle. Y- yes, and, and the word ends with derve, which to my brain has the R before the V, but it's not written that way. Yeah, French is, uh, along with English, not one of your more phonetically spelled languages. For that, you'd want to go with, say, Spanish or something like that. So this word in French would be pronounced hors d'oeuvre, 
or to anglicize it slightly, say hors d'oeuvre. And literally it means outside the work, which is a really odd phrase. And I would assume that it is related to the fact that, you know, hors d'oeuvres are, are served before the main meal. So, you know, if, if the main meal is the work, your magnum opus, <laughs> to drag in a little Latin, uh, then, yeah, it's outside the work in that sense. But it's also a terrific label to apply to any sort of snacks that you serve before the main meal because, you know, even if it's celery and cheese spread, if you call it hors d'oeuvre, it gives it a definite upgrade, I would say. It does sound a lot more snooty than appetizer. It does. It does. And this whole show is, of course, about (laughs) being more snooty. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, after the hors d'oeuvre comes the entree, I presume. But you say that's the main dish in English, but the French, but the French, that's the appetizer. Yeah, that's one of those really strange ones, how it changed its meaning. I mean, entree is related to the English word entry. You know, it's the beginning, the start. So in France, if you order an entree, you're ordering an appetizer. But for some reason in English, entree has come to mean the main dish. Makes no sense whatsoever. Well, if you've really done your main dish properly, you might, I guess, produce the piece de resistance. <laughs> let's, let's explain this one. It's very hard to explain that one. So, piece de resistance, I mean, literally it means piece of resistance. I looked up the etymology of this one, and it wasn't very enlightening. Apparently, okay. this phrase entered the English language sometime around the era of the French Revolution in the late 1700s, but it doesn't mean a whole lot if you translate it literally. But a pièce de résistance is, you know, sort of the main item or, you know, sort of the starring item on a menu, or, you know, you can use it figuratively, the pièce de résistance of your collection of art or, you know, the, the most extraordinary dish on the menu uh-huh. or something like that. But it is definitely one of those grand phrases, <laughs> pièce de résistance, that if used should always be accompanied by some sort of grand sweeping arm <laughs> gesture. Otherwise, it just sounds pomp. The French, like other Latin peoples, being very demonstrative. Exactly. And very into grand sweeping arm <laughs> gestures. This is a tough question, but it's not on your list, but I just want to toss it out. Any truth to the notion that, that Bistro came from the interaction of Napoleon and the Russians, and that it means fast? I have no idea where Bistro comes from. The story I heard somewhere, which may be dead wrong, was that Russian troops, uh, after conquering some of the Napoleonic troops and demanding that they would cook for them would demand that they wanted it faster. Bistro, faster. Uh, Maybe a Russian listener can, <laughs> can clarify this one. Yeah, I, I'd be willing to go along with that etymology, but I truly have no idea where bistro comes from. It doesn't look like a French word because it ends in O, and there are precious few French words that do. I can't that think so? of any. Yeah, It's not like Spanish. No, it's not like Spanish or Italian or, you know, some of those other Romance languages. I'll be darned. Let's see if we can't work Dick Cheney into this discussion uh, and talk about an eminence Greece. Is that 
correctly pronounced? Eminence Grise, okay. yes. Please explain to our non-francophones. Well, literally translated, it is a gray eminence, which is a sort of um, figurative way of saying the, the power behind the throne, usually somebody who's not particularly visible. So Dick Cheney is in some senses uh, a power behind the throne and, you know, an eminence grise. For W. But, yes, for W. But he was a pretty visible one. He, he was not one to shrink into the, the shadows. His wife, interestingly enough, was said to be, at least by George H.W. Bush, a true Eminence Grise, in that she was apparently very influential, but very definitely not in the public eye. So, yeah, maybe she would fit that uh, definition. The origin of this one, which I had to look up, is quite interesting. It comes from the uh, era of the French king, Louis Thirteenth, who had two clerics as his chief advisors. So one was the very famous Cardinal Richelieu, who... Because he was a cardinal dressed in red, he was called the Eminence Rouge, the red eminence. The other advisor was Père Joseph, who was a Capuchin monk, and the robes of the Capuchin monks were gray. So he was referred to as the Eminence Grise, the gray eminence. How is it the Capuchin monk trumped over the cardinal when it came to this being the general term? Apparently he was better at his job than Richelieu was. By being hiding in the background better. Yes. This is why people listen to Radio Paralyze, I think it's fair to say. (laughs) Mind if I tell you a funny story about Cardinal Richelieu? Oh, permission granted. All right. So, my wife Lisa and I and uh, our two sons were in Ashland attending theater in uh, the, the main performance space, which is uh, open air. And uh, we were watching The Three Musketeers. There's a scene in that play where the cardinal, Cardinal Richelieu, is walking down the grand central staircase down onto the main stage, and he's soliloquizing to him himself. <laughs> and... Musing, some say it is better to be loved than feared, and some say it is better to be feared than loved. And at this point, he paused for dramatic effect, and my younger son, Aaron, who was about three, maybe four at the time, sang out with this loud, clear, bell-like voice so the entire theater could hear him, why? <laughs> Gordon, you're prompting me into a digression I, I frankly cannot resist. For my money, the all-time great thing ever shouted out by a film audience at the screen. It was at a worse film festival in Newport Beach when they were airing the all-time classic Robot Monster. In the case of this movie, the alien, which was a guy in a gorilla suit wearing TV antennas poking out of his head, <laughs> referred to his species as the Roman, as opposed to the human here on Earth. As he's going about his brutish ways, at one point he gathers up a small girl, throws her over his shoulders, and ambles down the ravines. 
somewhere in the San Gabriel Mountains. After a brief pause, a guy in the back shouts, Hey, Roman Polanski! (laughs) (laughs) All right, a couple more, Gordon. One of my pet peeves is the pronunciation of the phrase chaise longue, which literally means long chair. In the American version of it, it becomes chaise or chaise lounge. Uh Uh-huh. Nah. It is not lounge. It is long. Possibly lounge and long come from the same root because, you know, on a chaise longue, a long chair, you kind of lounge about. But Uh you shouldn't mix those two words. All right, I've got five of them in the backyard. Clearly enunciate how I should refer to them. Chaise longue. Chaise longue. Yep. Merci. I think as the last one here, we should go with nom de guerre. Okay. And nom de guerre literally means name of war. It's an alias that you assume in a time of war. So... Generally speaking, you're not going to hear this particular phrase very often, but I've noticed that with the Ukrainian war raging as it is right now, that suddenly you're starting to see that phrase again, because generally speaking, all of the Ukrainian soldiers interviewed by the press use a an alias, a nickname, mm-hmm. a nom de guerre, instead of giving their actual name. So you hear of... These non de guerre, like hurricane or engineer yeah. or what have you, instead of Yaroslav or <laughs> Volodymyr or Bodan. Okay. In a similar way, we have the nom de plume for the Samuel Clemenses of the world that come out as Mark Twain. Nom de plume, which means literally name of the feather, where feather was, you know, like a quill. So you know, name of the pen, in other words. Gordon, it's been a pleasure as always. Very enlightening, sir. We hope you can come back and maybe uh, address some other languages like Latin or Yiddish or German or something, Turkish. I would be delighted to do that. Until next time. All right, very good. Gérald Depardieu Baguette Baguette All right, we're going to take a short break, after which we're going to continue, I think, in our space-time continuum with uh, Guy Tortorisi here to help us do that as as he escapes the bounds of space-time itself. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. And don't go away. From the moose, ananas, jus d'orange, bluff, soup de jour.